Looking for the best of European football? Well, you've come to the right place. Welcome to On the Continent. I'm Dotson Adibayo. I'm Andy Brassel. And I'm Nikki Bandini. On today's show, all aboard the Magical Mystery Tour, as Juve find their winning ways with a draw against Inter in the Coppa Italia. Is it a comeback? And what's their iconic coach, Pirlo, got to do with it? Then it's down the autobahn with no speed limits to hear why Borussia Dortmund keep losing, and this week to a team they never lose to. And still on the tour bus, who's in the driver's seat? We're playing musical chairs in the Champions League, where all roads lead to Budapest or anywhere, Turin or Rome, anywhere but Germany. Where will the road trip end? So, Andy, can we begin with what's been a busy midweek uh, of cup action throughout Europe? Yeah, it really has. And um, I suppose the place to start is probably uh, Jules Koundé's incredible goal for uh, Sevilla against Barcelona that give them a platform to create a 2-0 lead to take into the second leg in the Camp Nou in um, just under a, a month's time. I mean, Koundé, we know Manchester City tried to buy him uh, last year and we can see exactly or increasingly why Monchi laughed their 55 million euro offer out of hand really um he's Kunde is sort of becoming the Kawhi Leonard of European football I think he's always the lockdown defender and now he's adding that bit of attacking pep and Nikki what did you think of the nutmeg on Samuel Umtiti oh, I loved it so much I mean it's just so nonchalant like he doesn't he doesn't look up he's already moving he's already going at full speed and he just that one little touch to go through yeah beautiful and that wasn't the only bit of entertainment either but was it if we're talking about craziness we've got to go to Portugal for that one the first leg between Braga and Porto yeah and they sort of warmed their cockles at the weekend in the league match in which Porto were 2-0 up completely in control then went down to 10 men and created a uh, conceded a stoppage time equalizer um again they went 1-0 up uh, again they were playing really well Porto and then there was a really strange incident where uh, Luis Diaz uh, was going through on goal, looked as if he was going to score. The goalkeeper saved it. Um, but as David Carmo, the very highly rated young Braga centre-back, was coming across him, um, he caught the follow-through of Luis Diaz's shot and um, he ended up being quite seriously injured. It was, it was just a really unfortunate accident. Um, but the referee decided to send off Luis Diaz, which he was distraught about. And, um, you know, it was it was really unjust. But that wasn't the end of anything, everything. Because when Caramo was put into the ambulance, the ambulance had been driven onto the pitch. And because it's been quite wet, it got kind of stuck. So you had four players pushing the ambulance so it could actually get going and make its way off the pitch. This oh led to 12 minutes of stoppage time in which Porto got another player, Matias Uribe, sent off for a, well, headbutting someone right in front of the referee. You couldn't really argue. <laughs> the Porto bench got really annoyed. Everyone came on. The general manager, it's not a manager like you have in English football speak, but, you know, the guy who kind of looks after the team like a chief of staff, he was sent off. Sergio Conceição, um, the coach, said, 
would you want to send five or six of us off? <laughs> Good. <laughs> Carry on. And then once the game finally did resume, in the final minute of the 12 minutes of stoppage time, Braga equalised again. Never, ever pays to be sarcastic to the referee. <laughs> Careful what you wish for. Um, and having said that, Nicky, in the Italian leagues, well, certainly in the Coppa Italia, and if that's the equivalent of our League Cup, it's good to see that they take it very seriously and they want to win it. They don't They don't feel their B teams over there. Well, it's sort of halfway between the FA Cup and the League Cup because it does include teams from the lower leagues, but um, the structure of it is very favourable towards Serie A clubs who enter much, much later. Um, and it also doesn't include all non-league clubs. It's not an open competition. The lower um, tiers of Italian football get a very restricted number of teams that they can send in. And it's not even the best of some of those teams because the teams who get promoted then don't get included. And so it's a very odd competition that is somewhere between a League Cup and an FA Cup. And historically actually wasn't treated as that important. But I feel like over the last 20 years or so, um, with so many of the bigger clubs struggling to get hold of silverware through this sort of period of first um, inter-dominance and then Juventus dominance, it's taken on a much greater weight. And certainly this this week, we had some, some lively games, shall we say, um, inter against, well, Juventus's at home actually, but um, Inter playing away to Juventus in the second leg of their semi-final game itself finishes nil-nil, but you have Antonio Conte flipping the bird um, to his former employer, Andrea Agnelli, <laughs> who had some choice words to, to say about him as he was coming down from the stands. And then on Wednesday night, a much more entertaining match of football between Atalanta and Napoli, which ended with Atalanta winning 3-1 and going through to the final and posed some big questions, I think, for Gennaro Gattuso and, and where he's up to with that Napoli project. Interesting that he's the manager under pressure, given the kind of up and down season that both sort of Inter and to a certain extent, well, not to a certain mm. extent, but certainly Juve have had. Yeah, well, I would say that Antonio Conte at, at Inter is certainly under some pressure now. You think at the beginning of this season, they were playing in the Champions League. They had um, a sense of um, this is year two under Conte. We've got the players in that he asked for. We've added Hakimi to this squad. This team is, we've added Vidal, of course, who he wanted. This team is ready to go somewhere. And now all of the eggs are in the Serie A basket. And that is if he pulls it off, a good enough basket. If you win the league, everything will will fade away. But now it's all on that for Inter. So Conte is under a certain form of pressure. For Gattuso, it's a bit different. Um, this is already the fourth defeat he suffered in this calendar year. And um, his job is at risk, which Conte Conte is going to be there at least until the end of the season, one way or another. What happens next after that is a, a whole different conversation and quite a big one, frankly, given the situation that's going on with sunning and ownership and and um, questions about Chinese owners' ability even to invest in their foreign businesses at the moment, which is something that's, like I say, its own huge subject, frankly. 
Well, let's stay in Italy on this magical mystery tour because there's there's a wider context to this conversation, which is, uh, first of all, the Coppa Italia. It seems as if Juve are back in business. That's what it seems like, Nikki. Is it Mm. too early to call it a comeback, as LL Cool J would not say? (laughs) Well, just because there's one thing I think I wasn't explicit enough about earlier in case um, people didn't know. It was a nil-nil draw between Juventus and Inter, but that draw sent Juventus to the final because Inter lost at home 2-1 in the first leg. And yes, that means Juventus now, if we look at things in this calendar year, have had a fantastic start to the year. They've lost one game, which was a big one. It was the league game against um, against Inter, which they lost 2-0 at San Siro, but that's the only loss they've had. Um, every other game has been a win except for this cup second leg against Inter, which didn't matter because they won the away leg, so the draw was fine. Um, they've kept, I think it's now, um, they've kept clean sheets in every game they've played since the Genoa game, which has got to be one, two, three, four, five, seven games out of eight they've kept clean sheets in, um, which is really something. And it's not a coincidence that that um, has happened at the same time that Giorgio Chiellini has come back into the side and has been performing at a level close to um, what we're used to seeing from him. So it's been a really um, it's been a really impressive period for Juventus. Certainly, when you look at the results, I think when you get into the nuance of it, there's some more interesting questions. Um, their win against Roma at the weekend in the league, they won 2-0, but Roma had 14 shots to Juventus 3, which is quite a surprising number, especially for a game being played in Turin. I think if you look at the three games they've played against Inter, so two in the cup and one in the league, um, I don't think they played better than Inter in any of those games. So it's a mixed picture, but the results are so good And I think a lot of people are even looking at this mixed picture and saying, well, hang on, isn't being able to get results when you're not playing so great? And especially when, for instance, the Roma game, you didn't create chances, but you didn't really give Roma good chances. And you have Cristiano Ronaldo scoring a wonderful goal to open the scoring. You don't need to have all the possession. You don't need to have all of the pitch control if you can really stop your opponents from having good chances and you've got Ronaldo and perhaps after a season in which there's a lot of talk of Pirlo building a project of playing this new, more dynamic attacking style football with Kulisevsky, with Chiesa, with um, Morata, with all of these options, perhaps actually the missing thread to Juventus' bow was, okay, we're trying to build something more exciting, but also we still know how to be just Juventus who suck the life out of you and then score because we've got these great individual players. What I particularly liked um, after that game against Roma, Nicky, is the, the, the fact that when Paolo Fonseca gave his press conference, I think you might have given him the fear when you last spoke to us on here, when you were last on here a few weeks back, because you quite rightly pointed out that Roma never beat anyone who's any good. 
You know, that, mm. they, they, they can't beat the top six or eight in, in, in the league. And Fonseca was confronted with that afterwards. And he said, look, I'm, I'm not trying to hide from that. And then again, he got asked the question about his, his rather difficult relationship with, with Edin Dzeko. Um, but if you look at Juventus, and I, I totally agree, I think that the results have been everything. The performances have been quite up and down and it's clear they're still working something out. But I guess that the two points I would bring up is, A, the thing that has really struck me the most, the moment that struck me the most about Juventus this season is when they won the Supercopper against Napoli and just this mm. outpouring of joy. And, you know, we say how important it is for a coach to win a first trophy. It just felt that that was the moment where it all came alive for, for Pirlo. The other thing I would ask about Pirlo is obviously there's so much assumption about his philosophy because of what he was as a player, not just a player, but a player who dictated on the pitch, who seemed to have an overt philosophy of how the game should be played on the pitch. But he actually has been fairly consistent since the beginning and said, well, to me, Juventus football is winning football, aligning himself with Conte and to a lesser extent, Allegri. So is this what we're seeing now? Is the manifestation of Pirlo's plan simply winning? Well, I mean, I think you make a really great point, first of all, about the Supercoppa win, because that came three days after the league defeat to Inter. So it was a real um, inflection point, perhaps, in, in Juventus' season. If you lose to Inter and then go and lose to Napoli and you've missed your first chance at a trophy with at that point still the big cup semi-final to come, I think that could have really changed the the tone of things a lot for Juventus. Um, instead, as you say, they win it and they gain some momentum. On the specifics of, of Pirlo and, and his ideals, I don't think it's just sort of lazy ideas about Pirlo that have given Rice this thought that he wants to play a more attacking football. He's talked about that quite explicitly. Um, and um, you can look at his thesis, of course, but you can also just look at his approach to early games this season and what he said in press conferences. And he did talk about playing with what was essentially a five-man attack and splitting the pitch into five parts every time you come forward and, and having this um, overwhelming wave almost of, of different angles of attack that that opposing teams wouldn't be able to deal with. And he has, I think if you wanted to actually praise Pirlo as a manager, I would say what he has shown is that he is reactive and he does learn. Again, it was only the 17th of January when they played Inter in the league. And Juventus were not good that day. They were honestly played off the park. 2-0 was... Um, if anything, a, a modest return for how much Inter dominated and, and how easily they won that game. And they did it doing nothing surprising. The Inter liked to play this fast break football, very vertical with Hakimi, Nicola Barella. They use the speed and the straight lines to, to undo you if you give them the space to do it. And, and Juventus did. The two cup games are interesting because I don't honestly think that Juventus played better than Inter. I thought Inter probably were better over the two legs. And the tie was decided by two just mistakes, essentially, um, by Handanovic, the Inter goalkeeper, and, and Alessandro Pastoni, who 
just gave the ball away to Cristiano Ronaldo, which you you can't do. Um, but what definitely was true was that Juventus's approach was completely different in the cup games to the league games. They did sit much deeper. They did close down those spaces that Inter wanted to run into. And they gave themselves a chance, I guess, to win this way. They gave themselves a chance to just um, close up those spaces, to rely on your defenders, which obviously Chiellini, I've mentioned, has been playing great. But actually in the cup, it was Demiral and, and De Ligt at centre-back, who I thought played really, really well. Um, and playing that way, I don't know if it will work every time. I thought in the second leg, particularly, if Inter had shown more composure, Lautaro Martinez had an open goal. Um, Hakimi had um, a few situations where he got completely clear down the right flank and just didn't find the right last ball. But at the same time, even while Juventus were on the back foot, when they counterattacked and the ball got to Ronaldo, they felt almost as likely to score. So it's it's still a work in progress. Um, but I think that what's encouraging for Juventus and worrying for maybe opposing teams is, look, this is still the best squad in Serie A. There's no question when I look at the players that this is the best squad. And Pirlo is getting better maybe, or at least getting more flexible in his ideas as the season goes along. You see, we're, we're talking about uh, Andrea Pirlo and we're talking about Antonio Conte. Surely the elephant in the room is Stefano Pioli. And you know an adibayo never forgets <laughs> when 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 he suggested earlier on on OTC that it will be Stefano Pioli who will be at the top of the tree at the end of the season and he is currently uh, is the title race just between Pirlo and Conte for both of you or are, are you going to state the obvious that Stefano Pioli we should be talking about him as well Andy I think if you're looking at Milan at the start of the season, and as, as Nicky says, the, the the depth of the squad, I, I think you do go back to it being Pirlo versus Conte, which maybe it was always, always destined to be this season. But what has impressed me more than anything about Milan, more than their fantastic start, maybe even more than the contribution that Zlatan Ibrahimovic has made on the pitch as, as, as well as in the changing room, is the fact that they've always been able to recover from defeats this season. I think that's absolutely vital. And that shows that, and I think it is partly inspired by Ibrahimovic, there's more grit in there than a lot of people would assume. Uh, you know, it is generally, give or take the, the odd bit of experience as, as, as we've talked about, and now with Mario Mandzukic coming in, that's another bit, um, a pretty young side. And I think it's, not unnatural to assume that at some point they're, they're going to fall away, but that they haven't yet. And I think as we've gone past the halfway point of the season and they're still top, we maybe have to start giving them the benefit of the doubt to a certain extent. And if we're talking about consistency, well, Stefano Pioli and his role next, it doesn't get more consistent than that. <laughs> I, I honestly find this, um, what you're asking is not, um, ridiculous at all because the the odds are if you look at the bookies odds um, 
they have Inter and Juventus as the clear top two and Milan third. I, I find it a bit crazy, honestly. Milan have been top for the whole season and they went almost a year without losing a game. Um, they are a team that has big questions yet to face. As Andy said, it's a young squad. Um, they have had, since the start of 2021, a couple of defeats that felt meaningful. Obviously, they got beaten by Juventus and then they got thumped actually by Atalanta. It wasn't a close game. They got really well beaten there. But take a step back and first of all, they're currently seven points ahead of Juventus. Okay, Juventus have a game in hand, but the game in hand is against Napoli, so it's not a given. Um, They have got this, um, they've had this long period missing some really important players, Ibrahimovic being one of them, but also Ishmael Benasser, who has been so important in that midfield, and he's now coming back into the side. I I don't think it's... um, I don't think it's even reasonable, in my opinion, to talk about this as anything other than a three-horse race. And I don't know why you would discount the horse that's currently leading the race. They've got a tough month coming up. They're playing Inter in 10 days or so. Then they've got Roma next. Then they've got um, Napoli not long after that. So they've got a really interesting stretch coming up and they have to compete with lesser resources than Juventus or um, Inter. And they also have, unlike Inter, the Europa League to worry about. Inter have this great advantage, I think, now going into the last bit of the season, which is okay, all their eggs are in one basket, but that also means more rest time, whereas Juventus and Milan are, are both still in Europe. But I think Milan are 100% in this thing and definitely think people should not sleep on um, the relevance of Ben Asser coming back. Because when Kessie and Ben Asser are together in that midfield, with Hakan Chalinoglu, who has been a revelation under Stefano Pioli, I think that's very possibly the best midfield in Serie A. It's, it's right up there. So yeah, I'm I'm not at all counting this as a two-horse race. I think there are definitely three teams involved in it and, and Milan are every bit as much in the running as Juventus or Inter at this point. Okay, let's go bar, 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 autobahn down to the Bundesliga with no speed limits, by the way. And I wonder, Andy, <laughs> if that isn't the problem for Borussia Dortmund, that the Bundesliga is just moving too fast for them. They got beaten by a team that they never lose to. Yeah, that's right. Um, after, if we go back a couple of weeks ago, Dotton, uh, they'd won 12 uh games in a row against Borussia Mönchengladbach and they managed to lose 4-2 to them. Um, despite playing some good football, they defended quite poorly in, in, in that. And um, now the weekend's just gone. They, they lost to Freiburg, a, a team that they hadn't lost to in the last 17. 
and uh, they're very much their whipping boys. And again, it was another game that Dortmund could have won, um, but didn't, thanks to a, a few costly errors. Now, if we go back um, a couple of months, um, the fact that they weren't challenging Bayern was all Lucien Favre's fault. So they ditched him. Then a bit further down the line, um, we, we're talking about um, mistakes um, by Roman Burki, um, the long-serving goalkeeper. He's got a shoulder injury and is not involved at the moment. And it was two um, mistakes. One questionable bit of goalkeeping, one downright bad bit of goalkeeping by Marvin Hitz, his, his, his stand-in and Swiss compatriot that um, saw them go down at, at, at Freiburg. So you're left asking who is to blame after this? And um, Edin Tursic, the former assistant to Lucien Favre, who's, who's stepped in and um, is, is coached until the end of the season, he's, he's only 38. And sometimes you, I think you have to question his authority because um, whereas first it was uh, Favre's fault, then it was Burki's fault, now, there's a lot of criticism being attracted by the senior players in the team, um, by uh, Mats Hummels, uh, Marco Royce, who had another very poor game, actually, in uh, Freiburg, Emre Can as, as, as well. Um, because in the end of that game, um, the, the reason that Dortmund got back into it and had a chance of getting a draw in the closing minutes was uh, another goal from Yusuf uh, Makoko, um, the 16-year-old that came on and scored a fantastic goal after coming on for Royce, which is a pretty damning substitution in itself. So you, you have to ask, really, is Terzic someone who can marshal those senior players effectively? I think that has to be a, a, a reasonable question. Now, there's been a bit of bloodletting at, at Dortmund this week because... Terzic invited them in. I say invited them in, made them come in on a Sunday um, so he could give them a, a, a good old-fashioned telling off and a, a few home truths. And um, a couple of the players have been speaking about that. Um, there was the feeling that it, it had to be done. Um, but it was interesting hearing one of those experienced players, Thomas Delaney, talking about it in an interview afterwards. And he says, uh, well, Terzic is someone um, we, we respect. He's he's good with us. He's he's, he's tactically sound. Um, but Delaney brought it back on the players and said, you know, I, th- I think sometimes we lose focus when we have, and he has got quite a blunt way of putting things. He said, we can have a don't give a shit attitude when we, when we go a, a goal down, which is kind of damning really. And Dortmund are in a situation where that they have to care because now after the run of Eintracht Frankfurt, who are playing really well recently, Andre Silva is scoring so many goals for them. Luka Jovic, who they just got back on loan from Real Madrid, is contributing here and there, but they don't need to lean on him yet. Uh, Eintracht Frankfurt, after they won at the weekend at Hoffenheim, they're now four points clear of Dortmund in, in fourth place. So even if they want to top, make the top four, they're going to have to motor. Yeah, Nicky, it would seem as if Borussia Dortmund's has the Borussia Dortmund has to make the Champions League for this to mm-hmm. not have been a completely wasted season for them. But like Andy says, it's going to be a struggle from where they are now. If they're getting beaten by teams that haven't beaten them in a decade or so, that's going to have an influence, isn't it, on the morale, if nothing else? Yeah, I was thinking about Andy touched on it with. Um, the, the the question of whether Terzic is really the man to take this 
project forward. And I was thinking about the managers that they have hired in this sort of um, the the post-Klopp era. And a contrast popped into my head. And maybe Andy, tell me if you think this is a really bad contrast, because um, I've been thinking a lot recently, we touched on them earlier in the show, about the direction of of Napoli and what they've tried to do over the last few years and whether Gattuso is is this sort of slightly lost moment for them when you think they went through um, trying to bring in really sort of high-profile managers, Rafa Benitez, Carlo Ancelotti. Okay, Sari was something different, but he was this real um, manager with momentum who, who had a very clear identity to bring to the side. And it strikes me that Dortmund have done this remarkable job of positioning themselves as a great club for footballers, a great club for a young player to come to and develop Mm. himself and perhaps get a move onto the next place, but go there having achieved something, won some big games in the Champions League and um, set themselves up to keep moving forward in their career. Or perhaps there's also a great destination for a player like Marco Royce, who's, who's, career has gone a bit off course and, and needs to refine it. Either way, it's a place where you can express yourself as a footballer and you know you're going to be playing in these big games in the Champions League and you're going to have, in normal times, a great crowd behind you. But perhaps it hasn't, um, since Tuchel anyway, been a place where you think about there being a manager who's really leading that project in a clear direction. They haven't done that step of taking on, um, again, to use that Napoli parallel, a Benitez who you're saying, here is a manager with a clear reputation who can bring in a certain caliber of player, but also a certain amount of attention um, for himself. You haven't at least found that next um Maurizio Sarri figure either, who's got such a clear trajectory um, going forward. I I don't know if you feel like that matters for this club and whether that's a relevant part of what's happening there at the moment. I think it hugely matters, Nikki. I think the idea of having a coach that's not just a good coach, but some sort of lightning conductor, a sort of alpha mm. leader, I think that's really, really important to um, the, the way that football's lived in Dortmund and the way that Borussia Dortmund fans perceive the club. And that's why... Um, to an extent, there's still a mourning over Klopp, not just because he's gone on to do fantastic things with with Liverpool, but because of the kind of blood and thunder, um, real sort of living, breathing guy that, 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 that he was, whereas Tuchel was uh, even was always thought of as a little bit scientific. And, you know, that wasn't a comfortable click with Dortmund. Um Lucien Favre is someone who has a clear philosophy, um, but that philosophy is not thought of as very Dortmundish, um, as I think we said on here before. Um, in, in the week where he was sacked, one journalist um, said that the thing with Favre is it felt as if he had uh, a squad of players who were ready to get, win games 5-3 and a coach who was ready to win the games 1-0. And I think that kind of dislocation was something that was an issue. And this is something that Terzic is is having to live with because even though he was 
part of Favre's team. He's got a very different footballing philosophy. He wants to be more front foot. But I think in this of all seasons, it's really hard to instill that and, and pick it up, even if he took charge before Christmas. The famously plentiful Bundesliga Christmas break just disappeared this summer. They were playing again on the mm-hmm. 2nd of January. So he's got no time to work on getting those players to press. I think you saw that with the opening goal at Freiburg, the John goal where um, he had loads of time to measure a shot from outside the area. He could have been pressed by Delaney. He could have been pressed by Emre John, but they just stood off. And how do you get players to that level of fitness, never mind getting them to mentally switch on when they've not pressed for the whole time under Lucien Favre, I think that's really, really difficult to to deal with. And that's why now they're looking on to the next stage and they're looking to, do I do we get a coach who's got that strong philosophy? They really want Marco Rosa of Borussia Mönchengladbach. But I think even though Gladbach are kind of in a similar boat to, to Dortmund because they're also four points of the Champions League places at the moment whilst actually playing in the last 16, there's not that level of... Um, expectation and there's not that imperative to be in the Champions League that there is at Borussia Dortmund and if you don't make the Champions League how do you get Marco Rosa to come? Not only that if you don't make the Champions League how do you get Jadon Sancho to stay? You just about hung on to him last season at the end of the last season and what about Erling Haaland? If you don't get the Champions League, there are real problems ahead for Borussia Dortmund, I would have thought. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a real problem for them going forward, Dotton. And um, Jaden Sancho is almost certainly going to go. Um, they're not going to get the money, that quite the money that they wanted for him, um, simply because he's got a year left on his contract and there's a global pandemic. Um, the, the question really is, if they don't sell if they don't qualify for the Champions League sorry who else do they have to sell it won't just be Sancho um, now they will hope it to be say Julian Brandt or Mo Daoud but will it be Rafael Guerrero and, and, and players like that the, the, the feeling is that um, A they've got a bit, bit of dead wood that they need to shed and if they can do that fantastic I don't think that this is the easiest transfer market to, to, to do that in um, the feeling is still that Holland is is off limits at, at, at the moment um, and he'll stay for the extra year. But he's someone who's very ambitious. He came to Dortmund for a reason. He needs to be convinced that he's not just treading water there for, for the next year. He needs to be convinced that they've got a project that is still going in the right direction. And when we talk about the fact that the leaders of the team who are turning out to be slightly different players to what we thought they would, you know, it was meant to be Hummels, who I think is is still a leader, and sometimes I think he's frustrated by his own slight limitations as he as he starts to age. But um, you know, as we said, Emre Can and Marco Royce have have, have, have come in for a, a lot of criticism in in recent weeks, and Royce can't get any sort of form going at all. There's this really symbolic moment actually when Royce came off in the game against Augsburg a couple of weeks ago. And um, he handed the armband to Jaden Sancho, who was meant to pass it to Mats Hummels. But he just put it on and he thought, oh, I quite like this. I think I might leave it on. <laughs> and so Sancho kind of made himself the captain. And, and there's something in that because him and Holland, who 
you know, young guys. <laughs> it feels like they're the leaders. And like I said, when Makoko came on against Freiburg, he led the way. So there is a feeling that, you know, to stop this season being a total mess and to pave the way towards a brighter future, those more experienced players have to start pulling a little bit of their weight. And whether that's on the coach or it's on them, it, it doesn't really matter. But there needs to be more leadership on the pitch. Well, you've, you've raised the, the, the prospect there of ruining something that I was already looking forward to, Andy, which is a club managed by, by Marco Rosa and captained by Marco Royce. It would be, <laughs> it's, it's too good um, to ignore. But um, I do think the pandemic, obviously it's weighing hugely on all of football at the moment. And um it's weighing on every club, even at the highest level. It does feel to me like Dortmund's are one of those clubs on whom it is weighing most. And I think you've just articulated this big element of it, Andy, which is if you have to sell this summer, it's the worst possible time to be in that position because you're not going to get as much as you would have in any previous summer. And perhaps that's just part of a very painful realignment that all of European football is going to go through. But it hurts when your whole business model is reliant on bringing in these young players and moving them on. I wonder how much, as the extra element to that, how much are Dortmund in particular suffering the lack of fans in stadiums at the moment? You think it's one of those stadiums which has been such an advantage for them, having the the yellow wall, having that very hot atmosphere that you get in Dortmund. Are they these struggles that we're talking about on the pitch right now? And perhaps even more so with young players who sometimes need that extra bump, even though you've also just said that the young players are the ones doing best. But I wonder if right now Dortmund are on the pitch, one of the teams that are more affected by the particular context in which we're playing this football. Einwurf, Schmelzer, Lewandowski, jetzt mit der Flanke in die Mitte, die kommt nicht schlecht, Schieber, Reus, Reus in die Mitte, wir machen rein, Tor, 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 Of course, this could be Rotterdam or anywhere. <laughs> because with could regards it be Rotterdam? to the Champions League... Have we signed that off? <laughs> yeah, no, it could be. Um, <laughs> in terms of finding venues for Champions League games to be played, in fact, all Cup games to be played, European Cup games to be played at the moment, you can't go to Germany because of the restrictions there, the COVID restrictions there. So teams have been finding alternative places. It's important that they do find alternative places, otherwise they get uh, docked points in the Champions League, certainly. Uh, at the moment, it seems like many roads are pointing to Budapest, and I'm not going to do a George Ezra on this one. The question, though, <laughs> is why Budapest, Nikki? Um, because it's possible, because yeah, that's a yeah. place where they can. Um where the logistics of um, 
COVID travel and stadium availability and affordability all meet. Um, I, I'm struggling, to be honest with you, with this whole setup that we're going through in European football. Obviously, I love football, right? This is my job and it's my job by choice. And I am um, wanting to see the best teams play each other. But this is, I think, the line at which I really start to struggle with um, how determined football has been to maintain its calendar, even in the face of... um, a worldwide pandemic. I think we know that travel carries risk. We know that um, wherever you go is accepting the fact of people being on planes and coming from countries where the COVID situation is different. We know that football teams are not immune from uh, having players contract um, the coronavirus and spreading it of course, this is not going to involve the levels of travel that we saw last season when it was talked about quite a lot that this game between Liverpool and Atalanta, um, sorry, Valencia and Atalanta, um, became a vector of uh, moving the coronavirus around Europe. But to me, I find some of this um, forcing the calendar to go ahead quite... I don't know if distasteful is the right word. I don't know what the right word is. I think you you understand my meaning though, which is it doesn't feel like a good development to me. And personally, I think if you needed to get to a conclusion of these tournaments in a situation where the spread has only increased, um, it would have made far more sense to commit to a one location bubble as was done last season, which, as well as anything, I thought made for a very compelling spectacle. That is actually the argument, isn't it, Andy, that last year there were no complaints about the tournament from the quarterfinals. It was it was almost like a World Cup. Why on earth have they not gone for that model this time around? Well, I think there were no complaints from uh, the fans, or the pundits, or the players, Dotton. Uh, I wonder if it's a little bit different uh, behind the scenes with the TV companies because they're, they're mm. losing games, basically. I, I think it's that simple. Um, I, but I've, I do think you have to cede to practicality, like like Nikki said. And I think the way that we're in, still in a huge element of doubt, I mean, we've had some venues changed um, in, in the last what, day or two. We've had um, Atletico Chelsea moving to um, Bucharest, not Budapest, which reminds me a little bit of that busload of athletic Bilbao fans who um, turned up for the 2012 Europa League final between Athletic and Atletico that was in Bucharest, but they turned up to Budapest. Um, it's an easy mistake to make. <laughs> isn't it just? <laughs> um, of course, that won't be an issue for fans this time round, but I do just wonder, and it's it's hard to criticise because I, I realise that it's logistically difficult the, the the way that things are at the moment, and that we're in a changing situation. 
but I, I do feel that there could have been a little bit more foresight with um the last 16 um when we knew it was going to be a potential issue maybe it should have been thinned down to to, to one-off games then and they could have been at neutral venues because as stands at the moment there's a lot of people particularly in in spain and and germany who are starting to think now hang about we've not done anything wrong here but we're losing a, a home leg and as stands that doesn't mean this will be the way that it, it, it will definitely be because I suspect there are more changes to come. But as stands, um, if if you're Borussia Mönchengladbach or Leipzig or Atletico, you lose a home leg and then you still have to travel to an away leg, which there will be people out there who say that um, that, that makes no difference in a, a time with no fans respectfully i would say that is nonsense um playing a home game for the players is is not just about the fans of course it's about the fans as as well but it's about you know potentially being able to sleep in your own bed your own parking space your own changing rooms um all the staff as you come in the the, the stadium that that, you, that you're used to home comforts in, in in most senses really um but like nikki i also think that the repetition in the circumstances, a repetition of last year's final eight um, wouldn't, wouldn't be the worst thing. And I tend to think as things stand, unless things change dramatically, maybe that's the most realistic prospect that these games are kind of muddled through. Because we've got to say it affects the Europa League as well. We've already got um, Real Sociedad and Manchester United going to Turin. Benfica and Arsenal going to Rome and Mulder versus Hoffenheim, the one we're all going to be watching, going to Villarreal, which again, falls. all of this feels like it falls squarely in an unnecessary mm. travel sort of bracket. So it might be possible, but is it something that should be happening? Of course, we are also creatures of habit here mm. in on, on the continent. And we ask both of you to come up with a game of the week to whet our footballing appetites for the weekend. Nikki, do you have a game of the week? I feel like every time I'm on, maybe this isn't a coincidence. Maybe producer Charlie is picking weeks to get me in when there's big games in Italy. But I always have two to choose between. And this week, it's the same. Napoli against Juventus on Saturday is huge. Um, we've touched on the fact that Gennaro Cattuso is perhaps up against it at the moment in Naples. Um, Juventus obviously are in form. And also don't forget that these two never played their first game this season because Napoli didn't travel um, to Turin when they were supposed to. They were told to stay put after a coronavirus outbreak. That led to a lengthy appeals process. That game was originally afforded to Juventus and now is going to be played whenever they can find room in the calendar. But that's still not my game of the week because Inter against Lazio on Sunday night feels even bigger to me at the moment. Inter, having dropped out of the cup, need the win. They need something to lift them again and, and show that this one competition they can still win is attainable to them. But Lazio have won, I think, six league games in a row now. They're in incredible form. 
they're they're soaring up the table and back fighting with Roma for the last Champions League berth at the moment. I think this has all the makings of a, a great, great game in, in um at San Siro. Andy, are you equally spoilt for choice? Yeah, I think I am. And I feel on one hand, I should be flagging any match involving Porto at the moment because they're just so combustible. Um, and they play the derby with uh, Boavista on, on, on Saturday night. But the one I'm going to go for is uh, Spain. Um, Sunday afternoon, 3.15, Real Madrid versus Valencia. Good win for Real Madrid in the week against uh, Getafe, despite only having 12 available outfield first teamers which is a pretty fantastic effort but they'd had two goalkeepers on the bench when they beat Wesker uh, last weekend bear in mind even with those 12 fit out outfield players um, Zinedine Zidane still couldn't find a place for Isco in the 11 <laughs> and, and if that's not the equivalent of being handed a piece of paper saying get out I don't really know what <laughs> is um, Valencia are interesting because they've had a, a really um Difficult season um, behind the scenes. And uh, Javi Gracia, I don't know how he's put up with it. Perhaps he wouldn't have been put up with it if um, when he'd wanted to resign, um, he, he wasn't informed that uh, he'd be uh, in breach of contract doing so and was kind of strong-armed a bit into to staying on. He has stabilised things in, in the last little while. They're becoming more difficult to beat Valencia. Um a few teams have gone to Baldebebas and caused trouble for Real Madrid uh, this season. And I wonder if this could be another one. This was a Stakhanov production and part of the Acast Creative Network.